morning, Harmony. About three years ago, um, I realized I was starting to get older. Um, you know you're starting to get older when you injure yourself sleeping? Have you ever had that happen? But when you're a young man, right, if you injured yourself, it's because you jumped off the house or you were playing tackle football or something happened and you know the moment when you got injured. When you're an older person, you wake up and after you have been laying immobile for six to seven hours, you go, I injured my leg. And you go, how is that even possible? I've literally been doing nothing for six hours and yet somehow in sleep, I injured myself. The other thing that happens to you is not only do you get injured in weird ways, but you don't recover quite the same. So about three years ago, I ruptured a disc. Um, I don't know exactly how. I'd done some different things. and I, The culmination was I went to go hit golf balls with my team at work. And uh, on one of the swings, I went through and I couldn't come back. I was stuck twisted this way and there was no coming back. Um, over the years, it's, it's gotten better, gotten worse, and I've hit in a time frame over right this last few months where it's been pretty bad. And um, in fact, it was bad enough last time that he was like, let's get you on some, let's get you on some steroids. See if we can get the inflammation down. Let's see if we can get you prepped so that either we have surgery or you know, minimal, we'll, we'll give you a cortisone shot, which I hate needles, so I'm like, yay for both those things. And uh, it was funny because over the last like 10, 15 days, I've been on steroids. And so as of like Friday, I was like, babe, I'm feeling good. I am feeling so good. And I'm like, I think these things have taken care of the entire injury. I'm ready to go. I have tons of energy. I'm not feeling anything. I think I'm good. Uh, then a weird thing happened. The steroids ran out, and immediately, guess what I started to feel? I feel worse than I felt in years. And it was funny because I talked to my doctor, and he's like, yeah, that's why I tell you always be careful when you're in the midst of the steroids, because you take them and you feel like everything's great. You feel like you're super strong, there's no pain, there's no hurt, everything's good. But the reality is, no, everything's bad. You just don't feel it. You just don't see it. And today as we wrap up our series on love for the lost and talk about this story of the prodigal son, we're going to realize that God's going to pull back kind of the curtain for us and expose that one of these characters in this story is in exactly that boat. They have felt like everything's good. They have felt like everything's going the right direction. But the reality is, is they have just been numb to what's really been going on in their hearts. And they are going to find that they probably are in the worst position of any of the people in the story. If you haven't been with us over the last few weeks as we've gone through this series, Love for the Lost, what we've been talking about is what's happening in the book of Luke in chapter 15. And the whole context of these stories is a debate that's happening between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, if you know anything about Christ's life, one of the most interesting things about him was is that his enemies were not the unreligious. His enemies were the religious. Now, you would expect the Son of God, the one who comes in, the founder of Christianity, that he would actually get along with those who were already religious, who already knew God, who already studied the Old Testament. But no, that's not the case. In fact, those are his biggest enemies. And the reason is 
is these individuals have a very different perspective of what all of God's laws and rules and word are about. They have used them to build up their own value. They've memorized scripture, they've memorized laws, they've memorized rules, all for one purpose, and that's for them to go, I'm amazing and you are not. I am righteous, I am holy, I have a bunch of God credit because I do all the right things and I know all the right things, and you all, you're dirty and you're lost and you don't know God. They had taken the beautiful message of God and perverted it into some kind of game of merit and had deemed themselves the winners and had become arrogant in it. When Christ shows up, he goes, you don't even understand the basics of what this whole thing's about. That you've somehow looked at my Father's Word. That you've looked at this book of love and mercy and forgiveness and you've turned it into some kind of game that you can win. You don't even understand what we're here for. You could never earn righteousness. You could never earn God's love. It's a gift that He lays at your feet. And where these two worlds collided so heavily was on Jesus' treatment of what we would call the lost. The sinners. See, the Pharisees, because this was a game of merit, because this was about scoring points, because this was about them being better than everybody else, when they would see those who were lost in sin, when they would see those who were acting in the wrong ways, they'd go, separate from me. Get away from me. I have worked hard. I have been dedicated. I have been disciplined. I have learned. I have studied. And I have worked to not be like you. So keep your grimy dirtiness away from me. You might get me dirty. And so when the Pharisees would encounter people who were lost, it was always at arm's length. If they talked to them, it was in judgment, in condemnation. If there was an interaction, it was to tell them to stay away. That's why we get stories like the story of the Good Samaritan where this man is injured and hurt and bleeding and needs help. And yet when the priest and the Levites see him, what do they do? They cross to the other side of the road to stay away from his filth. Yet Jesus shows up. And the thing that aggravated them so much is Jesus would dive right in. Not only would he teach these people, but he'd fellowship with them. He'd eat with them. He'd go to parties with them. He'd talk with them. Now, don't get me wrong. He never partook in their wrong behaviors. But he surrounded himself with these people. And so in the book of Luke, what we encounter is this conflict where they're arguing and they're angry and they're upset about this. And so Jesus, in response, tells three stories. Three stories about lost things. The first, he tells a story about a shepherd with a lost sheep. He has a hundred sheep, but he loses one. And what does he do? He leaves the 99, and he devotes all of his resources and his time and his energy to finding that one that's lost. And when he finds it, he picks it up, he carries it home, and he throws a party with all his fellow shepherds to say, my sheep that was lost I found. How great is my joy. He moves on to a second parable and he talks about a woman who's lost a coin. And I told you we kind of missed the, the connotation. Uh, what's really being described is an intricate piece of jewelry that had coins on it. So imagine like on your, your ring, if you have those rings that have multiple diamonds, if you lost one of those, what would you do? And in the story, this woman with the lost coin, she has the ring and it has all the jewels except for one. And what does she do? She cleans her entire house out. 
She flips the furniture. She looks at every crevice. She dusts and sweeps everywhere until she finds that one little coin. And when she does, she celebrates. She brings her friends in. And she's so glad because what was lost has been found. So you're starting to see kind of a theme. And the culmination of this is the third parable, which is the parable of the lost son, or as we often call it, the parable of the prodigal son. And so if you haven't been with us, let me kind of walk you through where we've been. Uh, if you have your Bibles, flip to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we're in verses 11 through 32. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of the ones in the pew in front of you. And as always, if you don't have a Bible, period, if you don't own one, you take that Bible in the pew in front of you. That is our gift to you. You take that home, you learn it, you cherish it, you love it. All right? So in Luke 15, he starts the story of the prodigal son. And I love this story. I love this story because this is one of those stories where the mastery of Jesus' storytelling comes through. And you don't even see it fully until the end. So let's just kind of walk through where we've been. We meet a man, he has two sons, an older and a younger. And really, that's all we hear about the older. He has it. He has an older son, that's it. Really, we're not going to hear about that guy again until today. But this younger son, we hear a lot about. And the younger son makes a shameful demand. He demands that his father give him his inheritance now. And so we've talked about this is a shameful request. Even in our culture, which is a very different culture, going to your father and saying, I want my inheritance from you now, would be highly disrespectful. And in Israel times, oh my goodness, I can't even describe to you how disrespectful, how shameful this action is. And what we'd expect is, is the father would shame him, punish him, push him out, whatever. But instead what we see is the father actually gives in. The father has this unbelievably surprising response. He gives the son the inheritance that he's asking for. And the son, as often with sin, doesn't stop here, right? It's not one sinful action isolated. It kind of keeps snowballing. So not only does he take this inheritance, but he then goes and he uses this for wrong kinds of living. He leaves Israel. He leaves his family. He leaves his country. He leaves the protection of God. He roams into foreign lands. And there he does whatever he wants. In fact, in the passages we read last week, it talks about that he spent his money on wine and women. He blows through it too. So not only is he spending on the wrong things, but man, he just, just burns through this money, doing everything he could wish. And so not only do we have a shameful demand, but now we have shameful behavior on the way that he's acting. And lo and behold, he blows through the money and famine strikes. So now not only is he in a bad position because he's blown the inheritance, but the circumstances of the world around him have worsened and put him into a terrible situation. And he finds himself, a young Jewish man in a foreign land, doing the most shameful thing you could imagine. He's feeding pigs. And if you know nothing about Jewish customs, let me just tell you, their view of swine is not high. Taking care of pigs would be one of the most disgraceful, shameful activities that a young Jewish man could do. He finds himself at utter rock bottom. But there's a beauty in that. There's a beauty at rock bottom because here at rock bottom, he finally discovers humility. At rock bottom, he finally puts together what's happened 
and we walked through this a couple weeks ago, he actually starts to formulate a beautiful apology. Right? He doesn't just acknowledge that he's wrong. He acknowledges, I'm wrong because I was greedy. I was wrong because I was selfish. And my wrongness not only has it impacted me and put me here, but it also was wrongness that has offended my father who had loved me. And not only has it offended my father who has loved me, but it also offended my God. My God in heaven who had given me that father and who had given me that life. As we talked about, that's beautiful. Right? A great apology isn't just, hey, I messed up. Most of the time, we all know you messed up. But it's isolating. Here's what led me to mess up. Here's the impact of that mistake. And then the other part, it showed repentance. Why? He realized, I have to turn around. I can't just stay here and acknowledge my wrongness. I actually have to act in this. I am now going to pick up my life. I'm going to go back to my father. And he acknowledges as he's going back to his father, I don't expect him to restore me. Do you remember his request? Father, simply make me as one of your hired men. I don't deserve to be your son anymore. I know that I've hurt you, I've done wrong, and I owe the consequences of that action. Beautiful humility and a beautiful example of what true repentance looks like in life. And then last week, we got to the beautiful part of the story. Uh, you have this son who has done everything wrong, has made every single mistake, has, has done anything that's offensive, and he's coming home humbled. And as he gets to see his father, what happens? His father embraces him in pure, full-out love. Right? The son doesn't even get to finish the speech. He doesn't get to tell him about how he just wants to be a servant. The father doesn't care about that. Because every single day the Father's been looking at the horizon. Every single day the Father has been praying and searching and hoping for that moment that his son would come back home. And when his son comes back home, he doesn't get an I told you so speech. He doesn't get kept at arm's length. Though the Father in his unbelievable love embraces his son, he kisses him, he welcomes him home, and he throws the biggest party the family's ever had. And he tells his servants, why are we partying? We're partying because my son who is dead is now alive. My son who is lost has now been found. And what we see in this story is the unbelievable love that God has for us. That we have a father that after it seems like our character is beyond redemption, after it seems like we've done every wrong thing and there's no way that we could be forgiven let alone loved. Our Father sees us, and when He sees our repentant hearts, He just lavishes us with His love and His forgiveness and His mercy. That's such a beautiful story. And had Jesus just stopped there, it still would have been unbelievably insulting to the Pharisees. Because the whole point He's made to the Pharisees is, you guys look at this like it's some game, winners and losers. The reason I hang with these people, the reason my father hangs with these people, is because we love them. They're not just nobodies, they're our children. And so when a lost one comes home, when a lost one repents, there's no greater joy. 
Because it's not some dirty stranger with a bad history coming home. It's our child that we love, that we cherish, that we built, that we shaped, that we hoped in, that we prayed for, that we had all the expectation in the world for. It's that child coming home. And that's why you get the father who just loves. And so even if Jesus had stopped there, we would have found ourselves at an unbelievable gulf between how the Pharisees view life and how Jesus views life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. This is when the mastery of his storytelling occurs. And this is also, and men men especially, listen. This is when the boldness of Jesus Christ appears. I've told you guys for years, I've always struggled with how modern Christianity presents being a Christian man. I think how modern Christianity in the church frames being a Christian man is that being a Christian man is about being nice and about being safe. And if you've raised young boys, you know how much those two things appeal to their primal instincts. Moms, how many of your young boys, their whole goal in life was to be nice and to be safe? I have two young boys and I can tell you neither one of them is that like the main primal driver of their lives is, man, I hope to grow up and be a nice, safe guy. That's what I want to do. In fact, I'm often surprised at my ability of my children, especially Jake, to create dangerous situations in places that should be completely safe. The other day, we're talking to him because he's standing on top of the couch, balancing on the back beam, which I already don't want him to ruin my furniture, jumping off into a pool of cushions that he has made. And so we talk to him and we say, no more of that. We're not playing the pool game, no jumping off the couch. We walk out of the room, we come back in, and guess what he's doing? Not jumping off the couch, jumping off the end table. Because we didn't say anything about the end table. I'm not jumping off the couch. I heard you there, but you didn't say the end table was off limits. If you guys didn't want me to jump off it, you should have clarified the end table itself was also off limits. He just has a hunger to do these things. And to be real, I think most men do. Most men want to be warriors, fighters. They want to have a cause. They want to risk things. They want to go after it. They want to pour their hearts into things. And they come into the church, and the church basically tells them, hey, shut up and be quiet. Be nice, be kind, resist most of your natural urges, and you'll be okay. That's why if you look around the church right now, just do a quick head count of men versus women, and guess what you'll find? There's not so many men here. It's why Mother's Day is the second most attended day in church every year, and Father's Day is one of the least attended days of church each year. And a lot of that comes from us missing what Jesus is about to do. Most of us have a picture of Jesus with the Barry Gibb hair, petting a sheep, looking really happy and nice and kind. And we miss that he was a troublemaker, that he was a rebel, And that he often was doing things that put his life at risk each and every day. And he did so with boldness and power that terrified his enemies. He did not care the risks. He had no fear. And if more of us would understand that and see that and realize that the godly call to be a man is not to be safe and kind, but is rather to love and to love with power and strength. We realize this is a place not where you're restrained, but where you're unleashed. A 
place where you flourish. And so let me uncover for you where Jesus does that for us. Look at this passage specifically, starting in verse 25. In verse 25, we are brought back to the older son. A son who has been ignored for most of this story. We knew he existed, and that's about it. But in verse 25, we see a complete and utter change in the story. And this side character now actually becomes the main focus for us. It says in verse 25, Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants, and be inquiring what things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat, so that I might go and celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he, the father, said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and now has begun to live. He was lost and now has been found. This older brother as we've looked at this story, each person in the parable represents something. The father clearly in this story represents God. The lost son represents a portion of humanity. He represents that portion of humanity that runs the wrong direction. Those of us that have tried to be our own gods. Those of us who have tried to pursue the things of this earth that lie to us and say they'll fulfill us. Now let's be honest, each and every one of us, in some way, shape, or form, to some degree, has believed those lies. Right? How many of you have thought just a few extra bucks would make life better? Or if, you know, I looked a little bit different, maybe lost a few pounds, or had better hair, or was muscular in nature, who knows, maybe then, maybe then life would be a little bit different for me. Maybe if I was popular, or famous, or talented, or had a promotion, or had a better job, or a better car, or a better house. If I had these things of the world, they make me feel different. And let's be honest, they sometimes do. Anybody gotten that new car? That, like the first week you have it, like every time you walk up to it, every time you get into it, you're just like, yeah. Oh, this feels good. This feels good. <coughs> My brother has a Corvette, not a nice new one, but an older one, but it doesn't matter. Whenever he lets me drive that and I turn it on and I hear that engine roar, and man, when we get out on the country roads, not that I break the law, <laughs> but when I rapidly accelerate to the law-abiding speed limit, right, there's laws about top speed, not about how fast we get there. When I hit that pedal and that baby just goes, I have to admit, there's something in me that's like, that's cool. That's, that's pretty cool. I like that feeling. 
And let's be real, right? We've all had this like, new clothes make you feel different. New house makes you feel a little bit different. But what do you tend to find happens to that feeling? Very quickly. It goes away. Right? Like I've even seen this in, in my weight loss journey over the years. If you haven't been with us, I've lost about 60 pounds over the last two years. And every time I think there's a number that I'll be happy at, when I get there, you know what happens? I celebrate for a couple days, and then I'm like, you know what? I'm still fat. I need to lose a little bit more weight. And I pick a new goal and a new number, and all the focus is there. And I tend to really easily lose sight of where I've been. I want more. It's the nature of this world we live in. And in fact, you're probably feeling it quite a bit right now during this time of year. Because with every sale and every commercial, what is the world trying to convince you? That you need a better car, that you need better shoes, that you need a better device, you need a new phone, you need a greater TV, because if you don't have those, you're missing out. Right? Have you even heard the kids with FOMO? Has everybody heard that? FOMO, fear of missing out. There's a whole term for it now. I'm so afraid that I'm going to miss out. Here's the reality, you're not going to miss out on anything. All those things are going to leave you just as empty as the last one did. Because the things aren't what you were built to run off. God's the one that shaped your heart. God's the one that shaped your soul. God knows the fuel that you need. And the fuel that you need is not a car. It's not fame. It's not popularity. You need love. You need peace. You need joy. You need an intimate and deep connection with God the Father. Those are the things that fuel you and keep you moving. All these other things are distractions. All these other things are junk food that tries to fill you up and in the moment might work just a little bit, but ultimately it leaves you empty. And so knowing that each and every one of us kind of understands the prodigal son. Because I bet each and every one of us, even if we were just real about this week, we've probably done things where we sacrificed for the pursuit of what the world has to offer. In the hopes that if we had it, it might make us feel just a little bit different. Now, as church folk, though, I bet a lot of you can also relate to the older son. And in fact, as church folk, I really want you to pay attention to the older son. Because up until this moment, and this is the mastery of Jesus' storytelling, the older son's awesome, at least in the eyes of the listeners. Right? The younger son, the prodigal, he's irredeemable. He's the one that insulted the father. He's the one that sold the inheritance for pennies on the dollar. He's the one that fled his nation and his family. He's the one that broke every law and covenant. He's the one that blew through the money. He's the one that used prostitutes and wine and harlots. He's the one that fed pigs in the wilderness. He's the one that had to come back and beg for forgiveness. He's a loser. He's a bum. He's irredeemable. And honestly, if he was a family member, some of us would be sitting there just like the older son going, Dad took him back. We're throwing a party for him? We're going to throw a party for him? He insults dad? He takes our family money? He blows it? He throws it in front of all our faces? And when he comes back, we're going to throw him a party. Well, that'll teach him his lesson. That idiot's probably going to go run and do the same thing again. Can you understand that sentiment? 
Can you feel that a little bit in your heart? I can. And so when the son, the older son, sees this party, he, in this moment, represents all the Jewish people listening to this story. Because think, as Jesus is telling this story, there's those who are sinners, those who know I'm lost. And when they hear this message of love and forgiveness that the prodigal hears, they're like, wait a minute, are you telling me God could still love me? Are you telling me that even with everything I've done, God, God would embrace me like that? And for those people that acknowledge their Him, this is a beautiful story. But there's another part of the audience who's listening. Another part that's hearing this going, No. We're the ones that do everything right. We're the ones who've earned our keep. If anybody should get treated better, it's us. And so in that moment, the Pharisees and the people who think like the Pharisees, they totally understand and agree with what the older son is saying. The older son represents Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees. And what I want you to look at as we break it down is understand that really the older son is not that different than the younger. Go back and let's look at 25 again. The older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and be inquiring what these things be. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you've never given me a young goat. Do you understand what his concern is right now? That's not just the father's younger son. That's the older son's brother. Is there an ounce of love in his heart that his brother's home? Is there any moment captured where he at least goes, oh my, he's back? Oh, thank goodness he's back. I was wondering if he was okay. Wait, we're throwing him a party? At least that you'd understand, right? There would be a moment of like, hey, Dave's back home. That's awesome. Then maybe a questioning of like, wait, well, why are we throwing a party? That doesn't seem right. Shouldn't we be mad at him right now? But at least an acknowledgement of love that this person he grew up with, that he should care about, that's his flesh and blood, he's back and he's safe. Not an ounce, not a second does he even care about that. In fact, if we listen to his words, what's the only thing he carries about? He only carries about the material possessions. <clears throat> Wait, the loser's back and you gave him the fatted calf? Now, you and I don't understand the fatted calf completely in our culture, but the fatted calf was a special thing to a family. Of the animals that they would care for, there was normally one that was being fattened up, that was being prepared for one day to have a great celebration. Like, now I know you're Baptist, so you don't ever drink, but it's like those people that save that really nice bottle of wine. Or maybe have a bottle of champagne somewhere in the house and they don't know what they bought it for. They don't know when they're going to use it, but it's, it's set aside because they know at some point, at some point there's going to be a reason to have a great celebration. And that, when that moment happens, 
we'll be ready. When that moment happens, we're going to bust that out and we're going to celebrate this awesome thing that's happened. That's the fatted calf. And so the older son's like, we gave him the fatted calf? And immediately the focus turns to who? Himself. Dad, I've been here every day. Dad, I've never neglected your commands. And you haven't even given me a goat. Forget the fatted calf. You've never even given me a goat to celebrate with my friends. How is that fair? How is that right that this bum gets the biggest party and I've got nothing? Do you see how, in actuality, their value propositions are exactly the same? All the younger son wanted at the beginning was wealth. He wanted the things of the world. That's what mattered to him. And that's what he pursued. And he just did it blatantly. Out in the open for everyone to see. And what we now realize about the older son is he's actually not that different. His brother returns. Who cares that the brother returned? Who cares that I've been in your presence, Dad? I want a party too. I just thought I'd get it by listening to your rules. The only thing different about these men was not what they were pursuing, but the method to which they thought they could get it. The younger son was just blatant about it. This is what I want and I'll do anything to get it. The older son's like, I guess this is a game. I guess this is a long game where I got to listen to dad's rules, do work for dad, and eventually it'll pay off for me. There's no difference in what they wanted. There's only difference in what they were trying to get or how they got it. No difference in what they wanted, just difference in how they got it. And look at what the Father says to him. The Father says, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. See, the father views all of this completely different than the children. The father's like, son, your gift has been that you've always been with me. I didn't think the reason you were here all these years is because you wanted my stuff. I thought the reason you were here all these years is because you wanted to be with me. And so what God's highlighting to us, brothers and sisters, is, is that all of us that pursue God, not for God Himself, but for what we think God can give us, we're all lost. If you're here today, not because you're in love with God, but because you want His blessings, because you think that you earn some kind of merit or point because you're at church today or because you tithed or because you pray or because you read your book. You think that that's earning you some kind of credit that one day you're going to cash in for your ticket into heaven. If that's what you think, you're just as lost as people who aren't here this morning. And actually, scarily so, maybe more. Now why do I say that? Why do I say more? Because you have the illusion of convincing yourself you're good. See, I don't think at any point if we talk to the prodigal son along his journey when he's paying for prostitutes and drugs and drink, if we'd ever sat down and talked to him and said, hey, are you doing the right thing? Do you think God's happy with you right now? I don't think anywhere along that journey he would have been dumb enough to go, oh, no, I think God's really happy with this. He loves when I hang out with the prostitutes and get drunk. That's, he's a big fan of that. Along that journey, he would admit it. I'm running the wrong way. I know it. 
God knows it. I know I'm on the wrong path. But he would have known it. And the beauty of that is when you know you're on the wrong path, you at least know you need to turn around. Now, you may never choose to. You may say, forget it. This is the path I want. I'm staying here. It is what it is. I'll deal with those things at the end. And we all know people like that, right? right? You've known the people who are like, live hard, die hard, right? You only live once. I'll deal with the consequences later. Those people, though, they at least know that. But then there's a bunch of us, like the Pharisees, who have lied to ourselves that we're on the right path. Oh yeah, I do the right things. I'm good with God. Why? Because I go to church. I tithe. I make the community a better place. I read my Bible. I know the right things to say and to do. But at the end of the day, our hearts are just as dark as theirs. Now, why do I call this boldness on Jesus' part? Because he is talking to the most powerful men in his community. Men who could take his wealth, men who could take his life, men who are arguing over whether he should love the lost or not. And his response to them is, yes, I unbelievably love the lost. Why? Because there is no greater joy in my heart than when someone who is lost is found. And hey, by the way, you want to know who the real bad guys are? You are. You look at these people and you think they're dark-hearted. You're the dark-hearted people. These guys know they're lost, and when they find a way to get back home, they will. They'll cherish it, they'll rejoice in it, they'll embrace the Father with the open arms. You hard-hearted fools will look at the Father with the open arms and reject Him. Spurn Him and go, I don't need you. So let's talk about who's really lost. That's the boldness of Jesus. And the point that he ultimately makes to us is there's not really two sons. There's one. There's just different ways that we react to where we're at. All of us have the loving Father God who is there to pour into us, to love us, to shape us, to guide us, to be with us each and every day of our lives. And what the desire and the joy and the purpose of our life should be is not to be with God for what He has, but to be with God because He's God. Right? It's the beauty of Psalm 23 that we so often miss. The beauty of Psalm 23 is not the green pastures. It's not the clean waters. The beauty of Psalm 23 is that the Lord is my shepherd and He will always be with me. Whether I'm in green pastures or whether I'm in the valley of the shadow of death, whether I'm at the full table or I'm surrounded by my enemies, I don't care as long as I am by my shepherd. You put me anywhere. If I'm by him, I'm good. If I'm by him, I have everything I need. That's the beauty of that message. And that's what he's pointing to here. Even the son who stayed close to him never cherished that he was close to him. The whole time he just wanted his stuff. How many of you are here today because you want God's stuff? You're here because you want his peace. Or you want him to make you a better version of you. You want them to make your marriage better or your kids more obedient or your self-esteem higher. 
And gosh, you see this even in Christian stuff all over the place. Live your best life now. Your best life now is not tied to anything you own. Your best life now is tied to you being one with God. Amen. That's your best life. Amen. You could be a person like Paul who's literally sitting there, physically ailing, dead broke, no possessions, in jail, betrayed by people, and he goes, my cup overflows, man. I have everything and more than I could ever have dreamt of. And you go, how, Paul? How is that possible? He's like, because I'm good with God. Every day I talk to my father. I know I'm exactly where my dad wants me to be, doing exactly what my dad wants me to do, being used by him to do his work, do your worst. I am good. I am beyond good. Some of us are here. And we are the older son. You've missed that the greatest gift is not what God can give you. It is God. Stop worrying about what others get. Stop worrying about what possessions you have. And just pause to be unbelievably fulfilled in the fact that your Father God loves you. That you and I get to look at a perfect flawless being a one with such power that he simply says things and the most beautiful creations in the world appear a God of unbelievable mercy and grace and beauty and power and I get to call him dad I get to know that me and all my darkness and all my weakness and all my ugliness at a moment's notice can just say dad and God stops everything and goes, yes, son? What do you need? Amen. How can I help you? How awesome Amen. is that? How beautiful is that knowledge? And to know there ain't a thing anybody in this world can ever do to touch it. You can't take the greatest thing in the world from me. There's not a thing you can do about it. Give me a bad back. Give me cancer. Take my kids. Take my health. Take my wealth. Take anything and everything you can touch. And what you cannot do is pry him from here. That he won't let you do. Oh, what a feeling. What a feeling to know that truth. Leave you with two verses. Two verses that you should know, two verses that you should cherish, and two verses that should change the way you look at the world around you. The first is in Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. How do you view yourself? When you look in that mirror, are you impressed with who you are? As you walk around the world every day, do you see people and see the beauty in them? Do you see the goodness in them? Do you see where they're at? Do you understand where they're at? Or do you have the tendency to walk around going, thank God I'm not like that. Man, can you believe they'd wear that? Can you believe they'd say that? Can you believe they'd have that job? Can you believe they'd live like this? Thank God I'm not that way. If that's you, be careful. If that's you, be careful because you're probably more like the older son than you are like the younger son. And the beauty of this story is, is as irredeemable as the younger son seemed, that is who I want to be. Make me him all day, every day, because his story plays out the right way.
And let's be real, there's some of us like that, right? It's actually one of the words I do appreciate from this modern culture is hater. Right? The people who just, no matter what you show them, no matter what you say to them, no matter what's happening, they will hate on it. They have that beautiful ability to take anything and make it bad. You see that nowadays in modern culture? Like, I, I love this on social media. You will see, I don't care what your political affiliation is, whatever you feel, right? We can turn anything from the people we don't like into something wrong. I was reading some whole article about like uh, the, the first lady's Christmas tree designs and how it was communist. And I'm like, I really don't think her taste in Christmas trees was some kind of coded message for society. I mean, maybe you think they're ugly, but the Christmas trees. But not anymore. Anymore, we can tear anything and everything you do into something. And if we do that, that's pride. Because here's what I know. We won't want that happening to us. Right? We, we won't want that happen to us where every day we walk around and the littlest, tiniest thing we do, people blow up into some huge op-ed about what we're trying to say. Oh, did you see the shoes Lily was wearing? She's sending the message there. Clearly. I don't know. Maybe the message was those were the closest shoes to the door. I know half the time what I'm wearing is about what's clean. It doesn't have wrinkles. Make sure you're not in that high part because what God will do if you're high is He'll bring you low. The beauty is if you're low, He'll bring you up. Leave it with one last verse. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. Amen. He goes on to say it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. The point of this whole story is there ain't a single one of us that's healthy. It's just about which of us acknowledge it. Right, you can have two people equally sick, but only the one who is willing to admit they're sick and that will walk into that hospital and will see that doctor and will humble themselves to their treatment and to their care. Only that one actually has a chance to be healed. The other one can have the exact same sickness. But if they will never walk into that hospital, if they'll never admit they're sick, then no matter how small that illness is they have, it is terminal. Because they will never see it get better. Which one are we? Do you wake up each morning and go, Hey God, it's me, Luke, the sinner. I need you today. I need you. I need you every second, every breath, every moment, every step. I need you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these stories that you've given us. The mastery, Lord, that you have to weave these together and to speak to our hearts is such a beautiful thing. Father, I pray this morning that as we come before you that your holy word has spoken to our hearts. As you say in the good book, I pray that your word has cut through the bone to the marrow, Lord. That it's cut through our facades, that it's cut through our lies, and that it's pierced our souls. I pray, Father, that each and every one of us will realize we have been a prodigal. We've chased after the things of this world. We've believed the lies. We've tried to be our own gods. May we have come to that moment, Lord, where we realize how fruitless that is. How empty the things of this world are. 
And may we, like that young boy, may we have turned around, realized our wrongness, and come back to you, Lord, in humility. Father, we can do so with joy, not shame. Because we know, like that young boy who was met by his father and embraced in love, that is exactly what we'll get from you. We know the moment you see us take that first step back, you will run. You will greet us. You'll embrace us and kiss us. And Father, we will celebrate with you in pure joy. Father, we love you. And we praise you for Jesus. And in his loving name we pray. Amen. Amen. ask Brother Joe to come forward with me. I will be up here at the front. Uh, to pray with you if there's anything in your life or on your hearts that uh, you're just wishing that you had somebody else there with you. As always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service to pray, you seek me or Joe out afterwards. We are always here to talk with you, to pray with you, and to be with you along life's journey. Pray. Let's all stand.
Please take a seat real quick. I got a few things just to run you through. Uh, we've made some changes to the calendar, so everybody pay attention. Uh, next Saturday, uh, the 14th, from 4 to 6, we're having our churchwide Christmas party. It'll be here in the Fellowship Hall. We're asking you guys, it's just a potluck. Um, bring some snacks, bring some food. We normally do kind of like finger foods and such. Um, what's good is this is not a picky crew, so they pretty much eat anything you bring. Um, so feel free to, to bring things. We'll, we'll do a white elephant. Uh, we're asking either you just bring something from home, or if you do go buy something, uh, keep it under $15. It's more about the fun and stealing from each other than it is the actual item itself. Uh, we'll have a bunch of games, uh, probably do some Christmas carols, but it's normally a pretty fun time. So that's next Saturday from 4 to 6 here in the Fellowship Hall. And not only do you guys come, but feel free to invite people and bring folks. Um, often it's a good time to let them know that, yes, even Baptists can have fun. All right. Then on Sunday, the 15th, we're going to do something just a little bit different. Uh, we need to have a business meeting before the end of the year to approve the 2019 budget. So after service next Sunday, we're going to dismiss. I'm going to ask if you're a member that you hang out for just about another 15, 20 minutes. We'll reconvene and we'll approve and review the uh, budget for 2019 just so we can start the new year right. So it should be a real quick meeting, but if you're a member next year, just or member, just stay next Sunday uh, after service. All right, and then on the 30th, that's the last Sunday of this uh, month, we typically on our fifth Sundays have a big potluck, business meeting, all that. Uh, given the holiday season and it's right around New Year's, we're not gonna do that this uh, last Sunday. We will on the 30th have family worship. So if you're not uh, familiar with that, that means we'll have one worship service at 11 o'clock, Spanish service, English service, and children's service all together. Uh, we will do that as a family to close out the year, and then we'll dismiss after that. that. Everybody clear on that? All right, and then two last things. Christmas Eve on the 24th. Uh, we will be meeting at 6.30 here, candlelight service. Uh, if you haven't been before, we read through the Christmas story. We sing the Christmas uh, carols that everybody loves, uh, light some candles, and, and we have a great new way to uh, call in the, the, the Christmas celebration. Last thing. We have one last thing that we're trying to do to make the Christmas season special for some of those that tend to get forgotten. Uh, Miss Nancy has been leading us on getting these stockings stuffed for some of our uh, veterans that are in hospice care. We still have some of those that we need to wrap up by next weekend. So if you're available, uh, we're going to have a small group put them together right now after service. If you can't make it right now, Wednesday night, uh, we meet at 7 o'clock. We will be using our Wednesday night time to finish those up. So again, that's right after service today if you can stay. If not, Wednesday at 7 during class, we'll also be putting those together. All right? Million announcements. Anybody remember any of them? What's next Saturday? Party, 4 to 6. Next Sunday? Business meeting after church. Right? And then what we need to take care of is stockings in between now and then. I thank you all for being here. Uh, I remind you, you exist to bring glory to God. We do that at Harmony by building a family of disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. And the way that you do that is not through your own strength. It's through the spirit of power, love, and self-discipline that God has given you. So I hope you have a great week. Make the mission happen, and we'll see you later. Have a good one. Thank you. Amen.